Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the air waves. We integrate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experiences on the topic at hand. I am Tribe, DJ, radio host, and music editor at Third. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. And I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer. In this episode, we'll be discussing neurodiversity, a buzzword that has increasingly come to cover conditions such as ADHD, autism and dyslexia. We want to explore what it means to be neurodivergent and look at how it shapes the way people move through the world, creativity, mental health and more. We will be delving into the personal experiences and speaking to experts to get a better understanding of what it means to be neurodivergent. Talking to us about some of these issues are Tyler Grant and Timmy Satire, both who are neuro-minority advocates. Tyler Grant creates content to challenge the preconceptions of autistic adults and empower them to self-advocate. Diagnosed autistic at 17 off the back of a mental health crisis, Tyler aims to support other black people who are part of a neuro-minority group in their personal development. Timmy Satire, is the founder of the Black Dyspraxic, which explores the intersectionality of race and neurodiversity. Tumi is also a researcher in dyslexia. Before we get right into the show, we just wanted to remind all of our lovely listeners that this show now exists in two formats. If you are listening on Soho Radio or Mixcloud right now, you can look forward to a selection of music from and influenced by cultural diasporas and a high energy mix at the end of the show. And if you're listening on a podcast platform, you can enjoy listening to our voices offline and follow our show on Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast, or wherever suits you best. Thank you to all of our listeners who fed back to us and helped this new format come into being. So Tribe, why did you want to lead on this episode for today then? Yeah, sure. It's been about a year and a half since I got my own diagnosis. That year and a half has been a journey, a good journey. It's been a journey to kind of discover myself and what that means to me. And I have learned a lot about the way that I think and what it means to have ADHD, dyslexia and dyspraxia. And I still feel like there's a lot to learn. I kind of wanted to turn that around and and talk about it amongst ourselves, but also to kind of spread more awareness. I wanted to use this episode as a way to explore further this whole idea, but also to talk about my own experiences and connect with others who have been on their own journeys regarding their own diagnosis. You know, like Third as a platform is always trying to put a light on areas of diversity which are quite neglected. It goes like untalked about a lot of the time when we talk about diversity and also just from personal experience too I would say that you know the diagnosis of conditions can sometimes happen quite late in life so people who have had ADHD or dyslexia or dyspraxia and stuff it's not that uncommon to hear about them only understanding that aspect of themselves as mature adults and I guess I'm someone who can speak to that too. I would say, I mean, to be very honest with you, this is 
another reason for why I think this episode is so useful, just because I don't think I really understood what that diagnosis meant. And I think that is one of the things I think this this episode can do some good with is like sharing the knowledge to some diverse conditions. I don't think you're taught in school like what ADHD is or what dyslexia is or what the symptoms are. You know, I think I only really came in contact with the term neurodiversity maybe like a year or two ago. And I didn't quite fully understand it. And yeah, I think it's not really something that is talked about widely or even shown very often in culture on TV or anything like that. So a lot of people have misconceptions about it. And I think this episode is a really good opportunity to sort of like dispel some of those. That's so interesting because Rona, you you also have a diagnosis, right, that you got at university, which is quite late on. Mm, yeah, totally. I was like someone who was diagnosed with dyslexia quite late. And to be honest, I have quite mild dyslexia. So if I'm being very honest, when I was diagnosed, I will never forget, like, almost just not believing the woman who told me this. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? I can, like, read completely fluidly. But yet again, that, that sort of just goes back to what I was saying about misconceptions that people have. And understanding it a lot more has also been great for me and being able to almost understand how it actually relates to me. Um, because these things are so individual, I'd say. Yeah, I bet you were like, um, excuse me, I'm a literature graduate. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, yeah, pretty much, to be very honest with you. <laughs> yeah, so interesting to hear your, your perspectives on this. I guess for me, it comes from like sort of an um, interest that I've had since my master's, which was in philosophy of mental disorder. And on that course, it was sort of like combined, like, you know, the school of philosophy and the school of psychiatry. We would have lectures from kind of both these departments and, and we interrogated a lot into the sort of the gray areas of what is actually considered a mental disorder. If you use the word disorder, then you are saying there is an order. And how do you even define that? Because that was one of the things I kind of like struggled with when I was even just trying to understand them. Sometimes people say they're like disorders. Sometimes people say they're disabilities, like they're learning disabilities and all these different things. And a lot of it kind of comes with quite negative stigma. These are just different ways of being. They don't always necessarily have to be like disorders as in something that has gone wrong. That's it, nail on the head. So it's kind of like what you were saying, Rona, kind of moving away from this idea of there is something wrong with that person and having a better understanding that it's just a, a difference in the way that we are. We all have differences in the way that we think um, and it affects us differently. Yeah, so so also this term neurodiversity is, is in as much a description of the fact that there is a divergence um, of how people's brains work differently, some more differently than others in different ways? Because obviously you can have, within one category of a condition, like you know, dyslexia, you, you have people who you know, show their dyslexia to a, a very different degrees. And the way that they describe it is that it's not like a, a linear spectrum, but more of a spectrum wheel in which people have varying traits that would lend itself to being considered autistic or having ADHD. From that understanding, we move away from saying someone is highly autistic or mildly autistic or low 
you know, low on the autism, but having a better understanding that there's certain traits that um, come into play when they move through the world. I also agree with you there as well that we should have a better understanding that some of these conditions aren't negative. For me personally, I would say that my ADHD is what fuels my DJing. You know, my short attention span when it comes to good music and wanting to hear the next track, you know, it's like I'll just mix in the next thing and my curiosity to explore genres and sounds and stuff like that, that's all fueled by my ADHD. So it lends itself to positive qualities as well. Is there anything else that you sort of discovered in your journey of of having had your diagnosis? Because obviously that's been quite recent and you kind of got three diagnoses in one. I just wonder if you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about sort of your dyslexia and your dyspraxia and whether, you know, since having a diagnosis, you've come to terms with some things in your past or anything like that. Okay, so I'll start from maybe like primary school or nursery where I remember there was a particular moment where um, I sat my first exam and like the teacher just suddenly sprang on us that today kids were going to be doing what they call an exam or assessment and you're all going to sit in silence and we're going to you're going to be answering questions in a paper i remember just kind of being completely baffled like 10 minutes later when everyone was just sitting so dead quiet and had their heads in this you know booklet answering questions and I tried for a couple of seconds and I was like, I'm going to go over there to that display cabinet where they have uh, dinosaurs and I'm going to play with it. So in the middle of the class where it's like completely quiet and everyone's head was stuck in the books, I just got up and started playing with toy dinosaurs. And I remember that being fed back to my mum on parents' evening and my mum just turned around being like, what? Like, what What was your why? And moments like that kind of continued throughout my life in secondary school, where I would be in low classes for, like, French or maths, because, for example, remembering processes, like in maths, where it's like you've got to remember what steps to take to get an answer, I always found difficult. Like, I would understand it immediately, but then when it came down to me doing it myself, I just couldn't remember the process. But then when it came to, like, English and other topics like that, I would be in the top class. So I was always very extreme with my capabilities. So I would be able to answer questions, but then when you look in my exercise book and what I've actually written, it wouldn't represent what I knew. And I've always been clumsy as well in terms of, like... um, spilling things, you know, tripping over things, like especially in my teens. And so that was always at the back of my head, but I didn't really think about it too tough. Um, And I think it all came to head when I hit my 20s, when you come out of the education system and you're looking for a job. And I think the biggest thing that I struggled with was applications, where you would make small mistakes. Uh, sometimes I'd read over a cover letter that I would have written and I'd notice that I spelt, you know, madam wrong or some kind of sentence structure was completely off, um, even though I'd spent ages writing it. And you, you know that, like, once it gets to the person who's meant to be reading it, as soon as they notice that, okay, clearly they didn't really take their time doing it. And that's it. We're built in a society where mistakes are considered a flaw in yourself. You know, you made that mistake. So if someone who is wired to be clumsy in some way or to say the wrong things or to write the wrong things, how do you navigate the world 
in those conditions because you start to internalize all those mistakes as things you do you know you're not trying hard enough you're the reason why certain things happen like that for example I landed my dream job working at a label I really struggled with that because a lot of it was spreadsheets and I would like copy and paste things into the wrong square and things like that and I'd have the manager come out in front of everyone and kind of shout at me kind of going why did you send it out to everyone like this and I think it got to a point where I really did feel like I just don't know what's wrong but something's wrong but then it must have eroded my away at my sense of self and confidence so I was like I'm gonna do a GDL which is like a law diploma like I'm going to exercise this brain that I know I have and I'm going to have a certificate for it. And I enrolled myself onto this course and I struggled. Like, again, I understood the concepts, but remembering the cases was a real struggle for me. And that was part of my, I, when I got my diagnosis, it's, it's my memory that it is the thing that's quite difficult. So I found that I struggled quite a bit. And by, I guess, halfway through the course, I kind of completely burnt out. Like I handed in an amazing essay, got a really high grade. And then as soon as I handed in that essay, I was completely burnt out. And I was putting in so much effort. And it it was difficult because I kind of stopped believing in myself. I just didn't know what was up. And luckily, this university had this thing where you could go to an educational psychologist and see if you have this condition. And I remember the first preliminary test that I had within the university, the guy was like, oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. It seemed, there's a couple of abnormalities, but you seem fine. But then when I went to the educational psychologist, I was thinking, OK, maybe I might have dyslexia. And after like a couple of hours in the session, he was like, yeah, you definitely have dyslexia, but you also have dyspraxia and you also have ADHD. And it was a bombshell. I wasn't expecting it. And it felt like a Scooby-Doo moment. You know, when Fred removes the mask and everyone's like, oh, it's so-and-so. And And it's like, oh, that's what I've been fighting this whole time. Wow, that must have been both like a really revelatory, like on the one hand, we're just like, oh, finally, I feel like now I understand what's going on. I can try to like figure this out. On the other hand, a bit like, oh, what the fuck? Like now... Yeah, totally. I would obviously it it would have, but I think a lot of what you're saying is highlighting just how important it is that other people understand. Yeah, yeah, and that's it—the spreading of awareness. As you mentioned earlier, Rona, it's considered an educational learning kind of disability, something that would affect people in the classroom. And what I've kind of reflected upon and realised actually, it affects positively and negatively various aspects of one's life it's not just in the classroom as as I said in fact for me it became more apparent when I came out of the educational system yeah that was the thing I was going to pick up on that it feels like the word that you hear most often associated with things like autism or ADHD is like kids or learning disabilities or giving special support to kids who has these learning disabilities when you don't really hear about people talking about it about adults and it's like a massive drop-off in terms of both like society understanding and, and clearly by the sounds of your experience, sort of an understanding around the, the, the issue. It, that's it. That's part of the journey. At first you're like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. It's a shock, but okay. But then when you start to understand how, I guess, 
it does affect you. And when you start to read into actually what it means, um, you go through a morning because you start to realize those moments that were missed. I remember there was a time where I was uh, I was working uh, as a DJ in a cruise ship and we had to fill out these little boxes to say what hours we worked. It was important to know because you don't want to work too many hours in case there's an accident on a cruise ship and you need to know like if someone's overworked, if that makes sense. It's a health and safety thing. And I would always have to fill out these boxes after my set in the middle of the night. And um, or and then if you've missed out bits, like you know, if you've made a mistake, you would have to do it again. So what would happen is at the end of the month, I'll get called in by my manager and she'd be like, look, you worked this day, but you've put an X here. You've made a mistake. So you're going to have to do this. You have to do it again. Um, just fill it all out again and, you know, send give it back to me. And I remember having to like stay up late at night, like redoing, like taking like four or five sheets, filling out these X's because I kept making mistakes and not being able to go to sleep until I've got it right. And it's just like, you know, you don't know why you're making these mistakes and you're beating yourself up each time. And they're seeing you as just being lazy and, and not putting in any effort. And I think when you start to reflect on moments like that, you do kind of, yeah, you mourn it. You mourn yourself. And I think when you start to realise how some of those things about yourself wasn't you, but actually your condition, I think it, it also, in its own way, took a toll on my self-esteem as well. Yeah, that's really interesting you describe it like that. You know, obviously, I've also been diagnosed only with dyslexia, but I would say my experience was quite different in that I'll never forget like when I went to the educational therapist um and she gave my diagnosis I almost felt like it was a like a a trick because she was very like she didn't really explain the condition and she was very like yeah you have you know she stressed the mild aspect of it with very little explanation so the understanding was that I would just know like how dyslexia affects people and it would also make sense to me as a person and, and it very much didn't. So I, I will never forget almost just feeling like, I feel like this woman thinks I've come here just to get um, a laptop or something. But I almost wish I had had someone who had helped me make sense of it to myself as opposed to like this diagnosis and then you go out and you don't quite understand it. And I think that like a lot of what Daniela said about like the emphasis we put on it being a condition that children have as opposed to ones that like adults live with. It would have been amazing if like say that lady who diagnosed me, if she had said one of the symptoms is you might pronounce words funnily. Because for me, that's something that I do all the time. But like, like the official diagnosis for dyslexia, it's a reading disability. And that I, w- I wouldn't say I'm affected in that way. So I think it's also very important to remember that the words also stand for spectrums in themselves. And so the way someone outputs their dyslexia or their dyspraxia or autism might be very different from the way another person does that. But, but it's having that awareness that gives you an ability to be able to navigate. There are so many different symptoms that you can show from like one condition and you might not have all the symptoms, but you might struggle more from some. And I think because mine weren't really going to affect my ability academically or to write or to read it was almost seen that it wasn't like that much of an issue but it would have been quite useful for me as a person just to understand these things because I think 
what can happen is that you do sometimes do what you were talking about where you go like you know you doubt your ability at things and you think to yourself oh why why am I making these mistakes it doesn't make any sense or you know so I think sometimes because these people are seeing things and they're trying to help you on you know a professional or a academic level they're not realizing the impact that some of the support can have on a personal level for someone a lot of self-education has to come into these things because the, the amount of support out there is it is just not sort of enough would you agree yeah but I also think that self-education needs to come up at a society level you know I like I think it should be about like I don't think I have ADHD but if I understand ADHD then I can be a better human being or a better like person organizer support you know friend to a friend who does have that condition because I have the understanding to, about it so I think I know a lot of self-education comes in for people who personally have these conditions and that's just natural but what we're almost missing is the one that needs to happen on the level of society in general I have a story about that as well, actually. So I think I referred to it a while back in one of the episodes. Um, I had been doing this uh, law course and it was a dodgy one because they had stopped doing live lectures and live lectures and actual interactions with, you know, the lecturers is how I absorb information through like listening. So they don't, they didn't do this on the course and we were the first year for them to test this new way out. So I wasn't basically learning as much as I would normally learn in a university setting. Uh, Anyway, so I found the exams very stressful. A day after the exams, I was hanging out with someone from my university, you know, actual first bachelor degree days. I was still stressed. My brain was still fighting that fire (laughs) from, from the exams, the two weeks of exams where I weren't sleeping properly. I no longer believed in myself to actually do the revision and I was like mentally like burnt out as I said and I just remember like being there hanging out with this person and completely having no self-esteem like there's a thing with ADHD where they call it like rejection sensitivity so in my head I was rejecting myself like I just was like yeah no this is not a situation And and I just remember like tripping over things all of my various aspects of my ADHD and dyspraxia had like for some reason been amped up to a hundred under the stressful kind of conditions and so I was also like blurting things out I remember like we were hanging out and we were meant to be juggling as well and I just remember like not even being able to like throw one ball up in the air properly and then the more I was horrified by how I was acting the more I would just spiral out of like confusion so being even more stressed and I'll never forget that because it felt like I was in the back seat of my own self and that was actually a turning point for me because I was just like okay clearly I have to come to terms with my conditions and understand what it means to me and learn to love it and to come to a place where I'm at least with at peace with it at the very least because it does help my conditions stress doesn't help and it was a moment where I kind of turned around and was just like, yo, you know, like I had a kind of pet book myself, like that can't happen again. Also, also you're like, yo, why are we juggling? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that bad at juggling and, and normally, but I think under like the previous stress conditions of like doing exams and then the next day hanging out with someone you really like, I think all of that like culminated into a moment where I was just like, 
I really didn't feel myself. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to kind of pick up on, which is the when you were talking about sort of having to like fill out these little boxes of like how many hours you had worked on the cruise ship after a night of DJing and also, you know, the the course you were doing where they went from having a mixture of like reading and writing material to lectures and interacting with people to purely like written based, um, etc. I mean, there's there's many examples in both of your stories, but if you take a step back and look at history and how society is structured, um, it's, it can almost be like, well, it's by chance that the school education methodology is the way it is. Like the mainstream school system is the way it is that you write, you write your exams, you read the textbooks. And, and it's almost like, Ronel, you were talking about sort of on a society level, think like self-education on a society level to help each other, support each other and learn know more about how people kind of tick and how people work. It's almost like there needs to be on another level, a societal reflection of systems of how things or like design. Yeah, I will also say it's quite an interesting moment to even be talking about like, you know, this this question of design as well, just because like we've seen that through lockdown that are diff- they are different ways of working. I don't know if you guys saw on Twitter, but there was this post that was posted at the very beginning of lockdown where this um, girl who had disability, I think she was, actually, I'm not going to guess it because I'm probably going to get it wrong, but uh, I, I believe she was a wheelchair user and she didn't, for a little while, she was asking her university if she could basically do her course from home because like you know that's what she just needed her body needed for that period of time to be able to complete her course and she was rejected for it and she was like you know two months later we were all in lockdown and it was completely okay for us all to work from from home using computer screens and and etc which they obviously had told her before was completely you just wouldn't happen and there was no way they could do it. So I think we're at this moment where hopefully we're starting to open up to the fact that we can tailor and cater things a bit more for like different people in society, as opposed to this like one, one, you know, one rule fits all. Yes, that's it. I, I definitely agree with that. And it's a quite interesting how quickly they were able to adapt, you know, once the, the, it was necessary for them in the pandemic but didn't really see the need for that one individual who you know would actually benefit from those conditions I agree and I think also we need to think outside even just the um, employment all the various ways in which we interact and engage and exist in this world having that flexibility to allow ourselves and others around us to exist in a way that works for them and the way that they you know think and exist in the world that flexibility should also kind of be embedded into our society but I guess it must have been so like frustrating I mean I guess we probably can identify to that but especially to like examples that you just raised Rona of this girl who you know clearly had very like explicit needs for working from home and that being rejected and then and then it's like now it's obviously she's got it but it's like how big does that wave need to be does it really take a pandemic for people just to think outside of the box a little bit so i've been looking into the stats on the government website and things like that and i think it'll be really interesting to share 
some of these figures to paint a picture of the demographic within the UK. 6.3 million people, or around 10% of the UK population, is considered to have dyslexia. And this is according to the UK government website. These numbers vary. Some people approximate about 16% of the population. And about 4% of this population has uh, significant difficulties with reading and writing. And when it comes to autism, the numbers are a little bit different. It's 1.1% of the population. And that's about 695,000, according to the 2011 UK census. And when it comes to ADHD, that's 3 to 5% of children and 2% of adults. But again, all of these numbers should be caveated by the idea that a lot of people don't get diagnosed. And some people get diagnosed later on in life. So we don't really fully know how many people are out there, especially when it comes to women. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for, for joining us on this, this episode. Thank you for giving us your time. Just first of all, can you just tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Tyler and I am a autumn advocate, I guess you'd say. I create content online, basically challenging the preconceptions around autistic adults. And I am a just a champion of autistic people living the life they want to lead. Do you mind telling us just a little bit, like going back a little bit in maybe personal history, do you mind telling us a bit about your um, diagnosis story and like how your condition affects your life and, and also the people around you maybe? Yeah, okay. So I was diagnosed age 17, but before that I was, what, like seven, told that I have anger management issues, which looking back is actually hilarious because what's a seven-year-old got to be angry about then following on from that when I was about 13 when did you do GCSE was like 13 16 around that time anyway we was at school and my grades just like tanked and like oh let's have a look into this turns out I'm dyslexic then when I left that school and went to college they were like Mm, yeah you're still still something something a bit different about you and all through my childhood I'd always said like I don't feel like I've had friends don't feel like I fit in but because I was able to play with other kids and because I was like a quite an intelligent child my traits weren't picked up I feel that they were attributed to other things and that's why I was told I had anger management issues I came from like a technically single parent household was like the only black kid in the class of like 28 other white kids but then when I went to a college that a college that was like truly diverse the form tutor was able to see that it wasn't my race that was the issue it wasn't any other factor it was the fact that I myself am different like deep down so I'm autistic and I was going through like a really bad time with my mental health I was quite erratic like one day I'd come in I'd be perfectly fine the next day I'd come in and she'd be like I actually can't talk to you today sent me off for a mental health assessment and it was there that they picked up that I'm autistic Wow, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting that you speak about almost like this delay in the diagnosis. Earlier on in the show, Tribe and Rona, they kind of shared their story about basically late diagnosis because Rona was diagnosed as having dyslexia in university and, you know, Tribe 
you know, in the last year, was it? We kind of talked about this, like, almost like this light bulb moment of getting the diagnosis and being like, on the one hand, sort of maybe angry or mourning, mourning the past in a way, but also on the other hand, being like feeling empowered that now there's a way to describe it. So I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, perhaps. Yeah, so that's quite a common experience, but it's not the one that I had. When I went for the assessment, it was to keep me in college. And I'd already like applied for university. I think I had hopes and dreams of, I don't know why, looking back, why I wanted to go to uni. But um, yeah, that was always my plan. It was like college, uni, and grad job. And my college were threatening to kick me out because of my behaviour. My work was there, but I just wasn't playing the game properly. And they're like, it's more hassle than it's worth. If you don't fix up, then you're out. I was like, all right, okay then. Went for the assessment. And the relief I got from it was like, okay, great. I can stay in college and stick to like the plan I had at the time. It didn't really receive any post-diagnosis support and I didn't really like engage in the community at that point. It was just like a kind of get out of jail free card to keep me in college and stick to my plan for further education. That's interesting because I feel like one of the things that we keep talking about is like how there's a almost like a misunderstanding of these conditions being learning disabilities only Mm -hmm. and that the support really drops off after the school age whereas it sounds like from your experience that even you were still in school age you know technically a sixth form yeah but yet there still wasn't the kind of support that you needed and I wonder if you could share anything about that difference between like secondary school yeah so in terms of support even when I was got my dyslexia diagnosis like there wasn't really anything other than how do we get you to pass your exams and I think that was very because of the schools I was in they were very focused on how they appeared in league tables and you were just a number to them and even the teachers knew it they didn't really care that much about your well-being the the extent to what they cared is the extent to which it impacted your grades and that's the only way and reason I think I got my dyslexia diagnosis because my autistic traits weren't affecting my grades they were just affecting my well-being and how I was interacting with teachers and to fix that they can just put me on detention so in terms of support and my age the issue that I faced was because I wasn't at absolute crisis point to the point where I was in in like a mental health hospital or like an inpatient I think that's the right word and my age I was like in between adult and child services being 17 like really the child and adolescent mental health service kind of could have pushed me over to the adult services but also knew that like if they did I wasn't going to get seen to they diagnosed me and just left it at that I did a couple of counseling sessions because I was depressed at the time then there was like issues at home because of my age I needed to be picked up after my sessions and then both my parents worked full-time and it was just for them more hassle than it was worth because like I said I just needed to stay in college we'd done what I needed to do to keep my place at college there wasn't really any support for the autism but the depression they did a couple of CBT sessions and that was it from what you said there's quite a few points to be raised from that one the education system I can speak to my own experience that in class one of the things that kept reoccurring on my report notes would be that I talk too much Mm -hmm. Um, and so that whole idea about when a, a young person is not fitting into the expectations of what a student is meant to be which is a problem in itself because there's a I guess there's a general stereotype what a student should be like to the extent that they were willing to kick you out if there wasn't an explanation. Another point that kind of comes to my mind as well is the fact that for a lot of people, especially if your parents are working and have other pressures, that, you know, as long as their kid's in school, 
and you know hitting all the milestones that is necessary there's not necessarily the capacity or room to ensure that there were other sides of such as well-being is facilitated. My question to you would be like the intersectionalities of your background and how that overlaps with your experience and getting the diagnosis as a autistic person and moving through the world. Did you find that there were any barriers? Um, I feel like only now am I realising what the barriers are. Like if I did want to go and get help, like it's not culturally appropriate at all. And the way, looking back, autism was described to my parents and the information that was given to them it wasn't not worded correctly but it wasn't appropriate for people of my background like I'm so I'm Caribbean family's from Jamaica and it's just we're only just discussing mental health just now like to then tell um, parents who really like want their child to succeed that they have a difference that's perceived to hold them back that they just don't want to hear it so when I was diagnosed with dyslexia, I remember the only way I could spin it to my mum is that, oh yeah, it means I get extra time in exams and so then I can do even better than I do now. And when I go to uni, I'll be able to get like a free laptop and stuff like that. It's only because I was able to spin it like that, that they were willing to hear it. And if I didn't, then it just wouldn't have been a thing. Like, And the thing is being autistic, that it's the small things that were constantly causing tension and arguments at home. Like I am, um, no one's naturally messy okay but it's a bit more of a challenge for me to keep on top of tidying up because washing up isn't just one task for me it's broken down into all its little bits and things have to be done in the right order and like it's more complicated than it appears on the surface and I think there's this expectation and pressure on black people to always present well because we're already thought worse of and you have to look put together and all these things but then when you combine that with being autistic like sometimes it's a struggle for me to brush my teeth if I can't deal with the sense of like my toothbrush that day or like the feel of the water on my skin like makes me feel physically sick. Like there are little things and if you don't have parents that can help you deal with workarounds for that, especially when you're growing up, everything's just an argument and a challenge. And then for me, it resulted in me like moving house a lot. Um, When I was like 16 to 18, I was just moving around family members to see who could like keep me for the longest and put up with me and then it was like okay now you need to go on to the next one now because I've had enough and when you're trying to do well at college being autistic not being able to deal with change that well um it's hard I've watched some of your videos on YouTube and at times you talk about sort of myths that come around what autism is or myths about people who have autism I wonder if if you could speak to us a little bit about what some of the myths that are like most grating to you or, or that you think is like most prevalent out there so I think the two that's like springing to mind immediately so the one is like oh you don't look autistic and it's like well how how am I supposed to look because you can't see my brain so like what what am I supposed to look like and I was in conversation with this I guess you call her a TikTok star called Paige and she was saying that her experience has been a lot of people seem to misunderstand autism and think it's down syndrome and it's just not it's a completely different disability so there is no look to autism it presents in many different ways to, for me to even say oh I'm not a typical autistic person like that's a really stupid thing to say because like there is no such thing as a typical autistic person because it presents differently in every single person that has it we just have common traits and like common attributes and then another myth would be 
something along the lines of like, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. Oh, you must be like only a little bit autistic. And it's like, again, no, (laughs) you're either autistic or you're not. There will then be a difference in your, well, it's called support needs, but even then, like that's just code for the drain you are on society because everyone has support needs in life in general, even a non-autistic person. Like some people can't get through the day without a coffee. I can't get through the day without having like the same breakfast in the morning. Like if I don't have my oats in the morning, my whole day is thrown off. And that's not because I need food in the morning. It's because like, that's how I start my days. And my, like, I, it's just, it's complicated to explain, but that's part of my routine and being autistic, I like routine dependent on them, can't function without them. They're just, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. Like, we're not. We're really not. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thing and important thing to highlight because I think it is definitely problematic in that some of these words that are associated with various diagnoses are concepts like a spectrum. or And, and whilst these words have meaning in folk language... Um, it doesn't mean the same thing when it's associated with something like autism. And I think oftentimes you hear people say things like, oh, my God, I, my OCD is going to get triggered and they don't have OCD. And it's like, OK, you're trying to express something about maybe your tendencies towards wanting things tidy or whatnot. But you need to understand, like, having OCD is not the same as, like, wanting things tidy. And and I think that's maybe something that you are pointing to, like, the kind of problematic way that like people think spectrum means everyone is on the spectrum when that is not the case yeah so it's not a linear spectrum it's a circle one like once you're then on the spectrum you've got the traits in different directions which you may have more of the social difficulties you may be more sensitive to sounds you may have troubles with interoception like I find that in like common language when people tend to say oh I'm feeling really autistic today they just mean like they're having difficulties in social situations and maybe you're just a little bit socially anxious in that situation and that's not the same as autism anxiety and that's not the same as autism social anxiety like they're they're different things to an autistic person it sounds really stupid to say because they don't have the full understanding of the many different ways the condition impacts our lives Yeah. Could you slightly just explain to us a bit more like the difference between a linear spectrum and a, a, like what you said, a spectrum wheel in this instance? So a linear spectrum would look like the light spectrum or like a, a volume scale even. So at one end, it's quite low. And at the top end, it's really, really loud. And the way that people misunderstand that for autism is that if you're a low volume if you're at the bottom then that means that oh you can get through your day today and you're all right that's sound and people call those types of autistic people they mislabel them as high functioning autistics which if you were to mislabel me that's where you'd put me and then at the other end where the volume's really really loud you've got your what people mislabel as low function autistics and they have a higher drain on society, which again is just ridiculous because they have higher support needs in the sense that they then might use assisted technology. They might not be able to live independently. They might not be able to engage in society in the like 
traditional manner or the socially acceptable manner, which just isn't how autism works at all. So then you've got the spectrum wheel, which the easiest way to describe it is if you've got like a dartboard and you put someone, if when you're on the spectrum, you're in the bullseye and in all the different ways that the numbers are, are different autism traits. So for me, I have trouble with interoception, which is recognizing when I'm hungry, hot, have a headache, like if I'm ill or like just basically registering my bodily's internal cues, that would be one of the traits. And I would be like all the way up near the 20 for that. But then if you look at another trait, which is social awareness, I guess, it doubles at the end. So I'd be like at your singles in the middle because then that's just another trait in another direction. So that's actually more like what the autism spectrum is. It's a wheel, not a linear spectrum. Right. Is this one of the key things in neurodiversity movement or advocacy that people are really trying to educate people on that this kind of thinking of like low versus high functioning is not only incorrect, but very unhelpful? Yeah, it is one of the things we're trying to advocate for and about. But the issue we're having is research language. That's not always right. Like, and if the papers that are talking about our community and our condition are still using the wrong language, we're, we're fighting the people who are trying to help us. Right, yeah. So it, yeah, it's not only in like society there's an issue, in the research that we're supposed to be able to use and present and use to educate people, that's also wrong. Yeah, that actually links really nicely with something I wanted to get your opinion on, which is around the whole topic of Mm -hmm. self-advocacy, because I know there seems to be this kind of split or sort of controversy around some charities, let's talk specifically about autism, where it's sort of headed or founded by people who maybe they have children who are autistic, but the sort of the the founding principle behind what they're doing is like, well, autism is something that needs to have a cure and we are here to try to find the cure and we speak on behalf of people with autism in the same way as you're talking about research language and almost like the motivation behind some of that research perhaps this also penetrates through or trickles down into sort of charities and support network that is that spring up around it yeah it's fucked like that's honestly the only way to put it because whilst there is a space and place for non-autistic parents of autistic children to advocate and support each other and have their own communities what they're regularly doing is speaking over the voices of autistic adults and autistic people it's a mess and then you've got the case of we all need to work together and like the non-autistic parents feeling or claiming to feel targeted by non-autistic people it's like because you're trying to tell me what my life is like I'm your child in what 10 15 years time and what you're saying is hurting me so it's hurting them there's a value in the lived experience and listening to how people are now so that we can change the future and actually help those children and if the parents aren't willing to listen to what we have to say and think they know best because it's their child we're never going to get anywhere and what's annoying is because they are non-autistic because they have the better communication more resources and they're higher up in whatever organizations they're being listened to and not us and that's where I think a lot of the frustrations lie and especially with the bigger organizations and if you're founded by a non-autistic a little bit annoying but you know what if you're going to do good and you're going to listen to the community and you're going to use your resources to actually move forward in the right direction then that sounds like 
outcome focused, it doesn't matter how you get there. But at the minute, the problem is like, it's not being done in a productive, helpful way. So going back to one thing earlier, you were talking about being not typical autistic person, you were sort of saying, oh, okay, that's not the best way to kind of express that. It Reminds me of when we spoke previously and and you mentioned the whole problematic side of the language surrounding all of this in and of itself. To use the term neurodiversity in place of autism, in place of ADHD, in place of any of the neuro minority groups, it's daft. That's not what it means. Yeah, like people are just using it because it's a bit of a buzzword. It sounds cool. It's got diversity in it. Let's just slap it on the smaller group. And if you use it for specifically the neuro-minority groups, you end up with this term neurotypical. And that's just ableist in itself because that then says that there is a, a basis, like a baseline brain that everyone should have. And if you don't have that, then whoa, what do we do with you? And that's then like, for the default to be a non- non-autistic brain or, or not like a, a brain without ADHD like that then causes further complications in the sense that when you are presented with one of them it's a challenge and it's a problem and it's like it's not it's just a signifier that they may have different way of thinking and that's what we need for the world to progress if everyone thinks the same everything's going to stay the same yeah I suppose I'd love to throw a question out to both of you with words and language you start to have tools of like framing and actually in speaking with you and our other guests on the show hearing the nuances behind the problematic side of this term has been really eye-opening but there are pros to having this kind of labels I would I would I would assume yeah but having the right labels in circulation so in place of the misuse of neurodiversity neuro minority because that's what we are there are fewer autistic brains like that's a that's a fact but it's not bad to have a label we definitely do need labels it, like it helps it's like when people don't want to use the word disabled why not because it clearly signifies that i have a difference and i might need help and you know that if i say the word disabled but if we say like oh i've got a superpower sorry what like <laughs> that's one of the like the most annoying questions i regularly get asked like oh what's your autistic superpower what's your non-autistic superpower like if if i can't ask the question both ways it shouldn't it's not a question that should be asked to me but to tie this into the term itself neurodiversity i agree it's a a bracket term kind of like b-a-m-e that it's supposed to bring awareness and a new framework to our understanding that there are differences and that needs to be acknowledged but it can't be a catch-all term Like, for example, when you were saying about eating porridge or your oats in the morning and that's your kind of way to start the day and it's necessary for you. For me, like it's the complete opposite. I need differences. I kind of thrive in differences with my ADHD. Like I can't for me, um, any kind of monotony is a difficulty for me if that makes sense yeah you're thriving like novelty exactly exactly so I could I could have oats a couple of days a week or whatever but it will quickly become stale for me and you know having a term that maybe lumps us together and not necessarily see our differences can be also a problem in itself but at the same time we do need a term that reframes the way that we all think differently so then I think the word that would be used for that would be neurominority. That's that's as close as we are related. The only thing that we have in common is the fact that brains like ours are in the minority in the general population. I think what's sometimes missing from the conversation about neurodiversity as well is that brains that have like bipolar or people who 
experience in depression like their brains on a if you did like the brain scan thing that looks different to a brain that's not experiencing depression at a certain period of time like so that's still neurodiversity but then the way the words being used is for conditions like ADHD autism dyslexia Tourex like and it's not because that's not what it technically literally on paper what it means you touched upon briefly there mental health and as we spoke about briefly mental health does have an overlap with conditions such as ADHD and autism can you talk about briefly your experience and your thoughts on it yeah so I've experienced thinking back depression since I was definitely 10 probably earlier and it was picked up it was it was noticed like but it was just a thing that I lived with and looking back at the triggers and why it would happen it's because of feeling connected to other people and constant changes in my routine which was then causing me distress and then causing me to be depressed and I couldn't control my environments and things like that but the links between depression and autism if you look at some of the autistic traits and tendencies of autistic people I can't think of them off the top of my head right now, which ones they specifically are, but it's no wonder autistic people are regularly depressed and they're more likely to self-harm and things like that because we don't feel connected with society and connection is important. So although it is a condition which impacts how you communicate and how socially involved you are, we still do need that relationship and to feel those things. And another thing that has a effect on our self-harm and like things like that is alexithymia is it alexithymia or is it another one there's another term did a podcast on it and with the researcher who researched this and she was saying like yeah it makes sense because we have difficulty feeling and describing our emotions which then leads some autistic people to self-harm because that's how they can then feel something. That's how they can then communicate and express. But I do want to make clear that not all autistic people have alexithymia and it is a condition that you can have without being autistic. So it's it though it's common within the autistic community, it's not something you have to have to be autistic, if that makes sense. Yes, and that's something as well that I've been looking into with ADHD. And it's interesting because there are loads of overlaps with ADHD and autism as well. There's also many people who do have both conditions. Yeah, so it is an interesting kind of concept, this idea about connection and ways in which people connect differently to other people and the ways in which we expect people to connect, the ways that we don't really facilitate, again, inhibit people to connect to others. How does advocacy look like to you with this knowledge that there are these differences and the ways in which our society doesn't enable people with autism to thrive? How would you say that allies or people in general can better facilitate that? I think it starts with the people in your life who you may not necessarily know to be autistic or to be honest, they might not be autistic, but for people that have different communication styles... So for most autistic people, we have to then understand the world and then change how we communicate so that we can get our message across and function and get by. But then it's a lot of one-sided work. So common sense relies on a shared understanding. So that's why it would appear a lot of autistic people don't have common sense, but it's because we don't have the shared experience and understanding of non-autistic people. Like we 
all see the world differently as autistic people to non-autistic people who tend to all see the world the same so we're trying to get our head around your world but it's very rare to find someone who wants to actually understand your world and get their head around that so I (laughs) an example of this I was talking to my friend about an ice cube tray for a good 10 minutes and it was like halfway through she's like Tyler you're talking about an ice cube tray and I'm like yeah but this is what I want to talk about to whereas some people would sit and talk about Love Island I want to tell you how good my ice cube tray is and it's only now within myself that I'm just like these are the things I talk about and like to talk about so I'm going to do it and you're going to listen (laughs) actually great sorry I just want to say I would definitely prefer to hear your thoughts about ice cube trays in Love Island any given day any given day but then that's the thing it's also like trying to find people like that and then like as they're getting older as well making friends it's just a whole stressor but yeah just understanding like different communication styles so I are then very enthusiastic about the most random things i.e the ice cube tray <laughs> yeah I found a lot of peace in the fact that I now have done a little bit more research and understand some autistic traits more and understand why people react to me in certain ways when I'm doing what I think is normal so like the other day I shrugged my shoulder at my friend because I literally had nothing to say but she really didn't like that but I had nothing to contribute to the conversation yeah but so it's like in situations like that I need to ask well then what would you rather me do but she then hit me back with I don't know but if you're going to give me that then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing so if you are trying to help an autistic person or want to be an ally this is fine line between telling them what they need to do to conform or and educating them as to why you have a problem and I think we need a little bit of both yeah yeah I hear that I can definitely relate to that even another overlap as well with ADHD where I have you know things that I become very passionate about there was a a, a year and I have to admit to it that I was obsessed with the idea of Bigfoot (laughs) and that you know you know there is this possible humanoid that could exist in forests, you know, like, and, and I was getting into the science behind it. And whenever I try and communicate, it's, it's God bless my brother, like he he's here for it. You know, he, he has the capacity to listen and take in my interests. But like at a very young age, I would realize like my sister would be like, why do you explain things so much? Like why do you go too inner into things? And so I, I realized quite quickly on that, you know, you can't overdo it. You know, people aren't here to necessarily listen to everything you've got to say about the things you're passionate about. But I think that creates the, the capacity, again, to be a good listener sometimes because you understand other people's passions. Yeah, but I feel like what we're expected to do a lot as um, people in the neuro-minority is change our ways and like, accept that, oh, sometimes people don't want to hear this. But if I've got to sit and listen like in a board meeting about the most stupid things, like why can't I talk about what I actually care about later on? <laughs> yeah. There's very little give and take and I guess that's one of the perks or benefits of social media in the sense that a lot of it is one-way communication you can just tweet out there whatever you like and though in one sense no one's listening the people who want to hear are. I have uh, one more question for you before we wrap up what is your experience and thoughts on the intersectionalities of being a woman with autism I remember hearing some statistic women are diagnosed five times less than men with autism. Um, So there is, I guess, a less awareness of how it might come through and how it appears and what that means to women who have it. 
also intersectionality of being a, a black woman as well and living in a world of which you know we have white supremacy the patriarchy and all of that what are your thoughts of navigating all of that with um, a condition like autism <laughs> A really easy question at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we have a bit of an issue like this because there's so much to unpack in it. So there's a problem with the diagnostic tools, which is why women are diagnosed later. But then another issue we're having is gendering autism, full stop. If you like see gender as a binary, you've got your boys and your girls. Yeah, girls are diagnosed later. But then what happens to those who are like not boys or girls, transgender, like what happens then? How does autism present itself in them? So I actually even made a video on how autism presents itself in girls prior to thinking more about it. And yeah, to be fair, the traits I mentioned in that video were true. So being outspoken in a girl is a bit of a problem, but it's not then attributed to being autistic because you don't have the social awareness of when to shut up. But then in a boy, that's just seen as being boisterous. And if they do it a little bit too much, then it's like, oh, let's have a look into that. They might be autistic. Being ditzy and forgetful, that trait is, it, it's an autistic trait. It's a problem with your executive functioning and working memory. But then it's just like, oh, it's fun. It's cutesy. Like, haha, a bit of an airhead. But then it's like, it's an indicator of having a, a neurological difference. Then linking back to what I was saying before, gendering brains. I don't know how helpful that is. And I, it's something I want to look into more because is there a way we can diagnose autism without making it a boy and a girl thing? I feel like we just need to skip the step of making it known it's a girl thing because we can't have the neurodiversity movement like literally 20 years behind the rest of society. On that, I think people should really know where to be able to find your amazing videos and follow you online and the work that you're doing. Can you tell us what, what would be the best ways and places to do that? Instagram and YouTube is where I'm most active. We tweet sometimes, but they're all under autistic Tyler. Tyler spelled T-Y-L-A. Yeah, that's where I am really. to me tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you get into neurodiversity advocacy um, and what exactly you do hey Trev. first of all thank you so much for having me on the show i'm really glad to be here my name's to i work as a research assistant for the university of newcastle in my spare time amongst other things i have a page on Instagram called the Black Dyspraxic. So I advocate for um, neurodiversity, but mainly um, focusing specifically on the intersectionality of neuro-minorities. So I was diagnosed with dyspraxia at the age of four, um, and I've only started the page, it's, it's not even a year, um, long. I think I started the page in November 2019, um, and this was off the back of 
being invited to an event called um through the lens and at the event it was held at Kurt's business school by a CIG called the diverse creatives and basically for black history month we were talking about um being black and having learning difficulties um so like dyslexia dyspraxia dyscalculia and it was interesting because even though I hadn't started the page, like uploading pictures and stuff onto that page. I had already created the name, the Black Dyspraxic. But that event, it was well attended. It was my first like speaking engagement, speaking about the intersectionality of dyspraxia and race. And from there, I really understood that, okay, this is what I need to do. And since then, I've just been beating the drum and raising awareness. Oh, that's awesome. You said that you got diagnosed at, what was it, four years old? Yeah. And um, how did that come about and how has it impacted your, the way that you've moved around through the world? Really good question. Um, so it came about really because my my birth was quite significant in the sense that, not significant in the sense that there were a lot of issues Um I couldn't breathe for a significant amount of time. The doctors thought that I wouldn't be able to see, hear, and just do basic life things. And um, my milestones, like for example, it took me like 18 months for me to walk, for example. Um, I used to struggle to talk. When I was younger, some of my aunties and uncles thought I had Down syndrome, for example. So essentially it was very clear from a young age that I was different but people weren't able to put a name to it so I had an assessment at the age of four with educational psychologists pediatricians and other experts and they said you know what um the diagnosis was dyspraxia that they gave my parents and so we haven't looked back any since it's impacted me positively because I often say to people that I knew I was dyspraxic before I knew I was black um, I knew that there was, because I knew that I was significantly different to other black people. Um, dyspraxia, another name for dyspraxia is, it used to be called clumsy child syndrome. Medically, medically now people call it developmental coordination disorder. So there's an issue with coordination. And if you think about black culture and what black people, we, we dance every black person has rhythm to a certain extent you know our, our guys we love to play football basketball or you're playing xbox and ps and playstation all these things that i'm naming require a certain level of coordination and if you can't coordinate yourself properly you appear different to everyone else so for example another big difference is when I was in Sunday school, when you used to do actions to dance moves and stuff, it was clear that I did the actions quite funny. I used to run differently. All these little things. How do you think that your experience being neurodivergent, being dyspraxic, intersects with this notion of masculinity as well as black masculinity specifically? As a black man... Society tells you that you always have to have it together, be strong. You can't afford to be vulnerable because people are leaning on you. Um, you need to be a support system to people around you. But dyspraxia kind of 
debunks all of that because for me to access my support system i need to tell the people in my life i need help even simple things like tying my shoelaces and cufflinks i have to reach out to my sisters growing up and say can you help me with this i'm finding this difficult this is tough or i've had a bad day because one of my coping mechanisms of dyspraxia is vulnerability and so that has allowed me to think and to act beyond the notion that men cannot be vulnerable also people that are dyspraxic are often good listeners they're quite empathetic they they're quite in touch with their feelings again this is not a stereotype that black men really have but again for me my dyspraxia kind of turns all of that on its head and i really like it because it makes me a bit different it's also part of what you're saying that men who are affected with say dyspraxia it's possible that they would face even more pressures because there are these societal pressures of certain behaviors that we would expect from men and women there's more support in a way or more understanding that's needed there to like break down almost two barriers one is this gender expectations barrier and the other one is understanding what you know something like dyspraxia actually is yeah let's give you another example very very good example men are supposed to be the people that are good at diy people that can change tires and all those people with dyspraxia are struggling to even drive now you want to tell them to as a guy can you change a tire do you understand i find diy and the concept of putting things together from ikea very challenging very confusing but as a man those are gender stereotypes that that's what men are supposed to do. I feel like you really hit the nail on the head in terms of illustrating how stereotypes in general is damaging to individuals because I always find this discussion quite difficult to even sometimes for myself to make sense of because sometimes stereotypes can be proven true. But like on an individual case, any type of generalization or stereotyping is damaging and and I think yeah your example there was just yeah illustrated that that is a good point that you raised up in terms of how it intersects with the black identity how have you been able to navigate that as a person of African heritage how's your family supported you and what was their viewpoint really good question I think it's positives and negatives so one positive was it made me realize that my identity my ethnicity is not defined by my ability to be good at sports it's not defined by my ability to dance you know i knew from a very early age that academics was my thing studying was my thing and that was really good for me because i felt like the way society set up we don't really tell our young people that not that dancing and being good at sport isn't great but there's more that can define you. So that was really good for me. It was difficult trying to explain it to friends and people in the community because there's still a lot of stigma. People didn't really understand. They were like, ah, dyspraxia? Like, but didn't he do really well in GCSEs? For a very, very long time, even though I had dyspraxia, I tried so hard to be like everyone else but it was clear that there was differences there was just a lot of that in the community my my mum and dad showed me a lot of support but they spent a lot of time explaining myself to loads of different people 
how have you been able to express your interests and express the ways in which you as an individual exist and allows you to still do what you do and be who you are? Just because of the way we've we've spoken about these differences, because we call it a learning difficulty, we just think it's to do with academics. But my dyspraxia causes me to be quite empathetic compared to most guys. And that means having the ability to be vulnerable, to be open with my emotions means that meant that I have a lot of female friends. Just being able to just talk through stuff that I would much rather have a two hour conversation with people than a 90 minute football match because I was better at talking than I was at playing football. But there's still challenges because it's not just learning. This actually affects the fact that the way I process information, my ability to organize things, my ability to keep a clean and tidy room. All these things, they're challenging. And a lot of people just don't understand it. I had an uncle just ask me a few days ago, you're 28, why can't you drive yet? Driving is something that I want to do by God's grace. What he felt to understand in that moment is that because of coordination, driving is something that a lot of dyspraxics worry about if they're able to do it. It's a difficult thing because there's a lot of gross and fine motor skills involved in driving. But he still felt like at 28, I should be driving. And that's not the first time I've heard that. I feel like that almost touches on some of these questions about sort of hidden or invisible or when it comes to like an employment context by not having as much understanding like you know job applications that say must have driving license I mean that can exclude people beyond you know people with dyspraxia yeah definitely in some ways it's discrimination right but the job market is a very interesting one because do you disclose the fact that you have a neurodifference? Especially as a black person, they're already going to give you prejudice because of the color of the skin. Do you now disclose it that you're dyspraxic or dyslexic? That might create a level of bias as well. And I spent a lot of times in my interviews having to explain what dyspraxia is. And literally, when I was looking for work for my current job, I spent eight months looking for work and I was like you know what I'm going to be honest I'm going to tell them I have dyspraxia because I want people to accept me for me and just employ me and if they know my difficulties they'll know how to support me and everything how naive I was and I got to the point I wasn't getting job offers and I stopped so I stopped disclosing it and I said you know what I'm going to disclose it once I get the job offer in a few weeks, I got three job offers. Like a lot of employees don't realize that the government actually gives support, access to work. They pay a majority of, they employees get reimbursed for supplying this stuff. And I know some of the support is minimal, but the government does offer some help. But it's ironic that people who are newer minorities have issues will work because for me and this is why advocacy is so important if you understand that yes dyslexics or dyspraxics or autistics may be bad at quite a few things that normal people are good at but there's going to be a few things that each dyslexic or dyspraxic are really really good at that could add so much value to your business. There's a lot of evidence out there that 
um, dyslexics, for example, make great entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of the most famous entrepreneurs in the world, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Theo Pavitas, the Asian guy from Dragon's Den, they all have dyslexia, they're all on the spectrum. But now companies need to understand, okay, how can I utilize these talents to actually improve my company? Do you understand? How can I actually leverage their talents? Okay, empowering new minorities is different from any other disability because it once you empower them properly, you can actually see a difference in your workforce as well, a difference to your company, a difference to your society. I'm another example, Greta Thunberg, the person that advocates for climate change, we all know about her. But you know she's a near minority. I think she has autism with ADHD. And that's the power of of being a near minority. And in some literature now they discuss, they they describe their difference as a superpower. And that's why it's so important that we need to talk about it. So sometimes I kind of think like, what would the black community look like if around the world or even the UK we identified fifty or a hundred dyslexics, dyspraxic people, and we offered them their support that they need to fulfill their dreams. What would not their lives look like, but the black economy as a whole? For me, that's a different perspective on supporting black businesses, but that's what I'm passionate about. You mentioned about the intersectionalities of the black community. Where do you think it's falling short and how else do you think we can approach this? I think it's falling short across the board. So, for example, the criminal justice system, we know that there's an over-representation of neurodivergence, or should I say neuro-minorities, within the prison population. We also understand there's an over-representation of BME individuals in the prison population as well. Okay, how can we reduce that? Sometimes we deal with race separately, and we deal with neurodiversity separately but actually we need to overcome that and we actually need to think about these two issues and bring them together to develop effective strategies another example if a black child misbehaves in school they're likely to be called stubborn is lazy doesn't listen doesn't pay attention if a child does exactly the same thing but just has a different ethnicity oh yeah maybe your child is autistic or has ADHD. Unfortunately, black people come from economically deprived backgrounds. In the UK, despite the fact that we have the National Health Service, you still have to pay for a diagnosis of dyslexia, dyspraxia or autism if you're not in full-time education. Now, if you've got so many other things to do with your money, that's not going to be a priority on your list. And Guess what? People from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that maybe didn't even have the support to get them to university in the first place lose out. And I think it's a shame. Another example of the intersectionality is looking at people who come from less socioeconomic backgrounds. Their schools that they go to will probably be state schools, bigger class sizes, for example. But if you come from a middle class or upper middle class background you're more likely to pay for private school education if you're in a school where you have smaller class sizes 
the teachers are able to pay more attention to you and therefore give you the support that you need but generally in schools where the schools aren't great and and the schools where pupils are oversubscribed the support for people who are neurodivergent is not there and it's people that have these learning differences like i do miss out your outcomes and what you are able to achieve if you have a learning difference is very impacted not just by your race but your socioeconomic status that's why people like bill gates and richard branson are used as oh this is what you could do or this is what you could be like if you're dyslexic or dyspraxic but however these guys came from white middle class families so we need to have an honest conversation about what really is going on and the social issues that are interacting you've painted a very vivid picture about how work needs to be done across the board to strengthen people's understanding on these issues first of all the problem of having to pay for a diagnosis um second of all the fact of having to pay for it and whether that's something people would choose to put their money on and then you know looping back to previously what you said about the sort of discrimination that there is in regards to various conditions like there's just on every step there's there's just plenty of work to be done still there's so much work to be done fortunately the uk government is becoming more aware but i'm a british born nigerian i need to ask myself what would have happened if i was born in nigeria if I was born in Zimbabwe, or if I was born in Jamaica or Bahamas. And if you think about that, and you realize that actually neurodiversity and neurodifferences, it's not just a UK issue, but it's a global issue. The only reason I'm here is because of globalization. I could have easily been born on the motherland. There's so much work that needs to be done globally. Is there other things that you feel like needs to be considered when talking about dyspraxia? And I also wanted to ask as well about the label itself, neurodiversity. What is your thoughts on that? If you don't understand the purpose of a thing, it's easy to abuse it. So for us to understand really what's going on with neurodiversity and the labeling, it's very important for us to look at the origins and why it came about. So just a brief history lesson, neurodiversity was a term coined by a social scientist who lived in Australia. She was actually on the autistic spectrum herself, Judy Singer, and she published this term in the sociology thesis in 1999, I believe. What she was trying to say is actually neurodiversity is a subset of biodiversity. Biodiversity just describes humanity and like organisms and how we live together that another way we can break it down is neurodiversity and what she was trying to say is actually no two brains are the same we're all different we're all neurodiverse because neurodiversity just means a variety in our brain makeup no two brains are the same There's, there are all variations in how we we work genetically and environmentally and therefore we are all neurodiverse so what would actually be a more accurate term would be a neuro-minority and neuro-minorities would be to label people where the way their brain works is significantly different from 
the majority of the population and therefore there are neuro minorities. Or another way that you can that you may hear the term is neurodivergent. That means that our differences or the variation in our brains have diverged or have deviated significantly from the social norm or what society considers normal. Again, those those labels are still problematic because what is normal, right? But those are just different ways we can look at it. The reason why it gets problematic is because if you look at the way systems like the our educational system and employment system works, everything was created for the newer majority rather than the newer minority. Remember, this term was only coined in 1999. So it's 21 years old and this is still a very new phenomenon that the world is just getting to grips with right now i hope that makes sense so we're all neurodiverse this whether you have dyslexia autism dyspraxia or you don't have any of those conditions at all we're all neurodiverse so that's the message that a true neurodiversity advocate would be talking about. But what you're trying to do is you're raising awareness of neuro minorities. What you can see from her work is if we suppress neuro minorities, you are missing out of the richness and diversity and the social cohesion of culture. That a good society, a good culture is able to reach out from all these variations and differences. Kind of the same way that we love multicultural societies. We love societies where there's diversity in ages or diversity in nationalities. That's the same way where a good society wants to promote diversity in how brains work. I'll go on to, I guess, our final question. As we mentioned before, you're an advocate what does advocacy look to you and what could people do to also support or show allyship to neurodivergent minorities? Advocacy for me just means not being afraid to have the conversation, not being afraid to talk about it. Anybody that I speak to, when I tell them that I'm dyspraxic and I explain to them what dyspraxic means, that for me is advocacy because I'm raising awareness. But advocacy can mean so many things to so many different people. We can advocate on social media. We can advocate in doing things like this. But you don't have to have a page for you to be involved. It's just the willingness to have the conversation, the willingness to understand, the willingness to educate yourself. It's really, really important. The same way we talk about being an ally to the black community, read it up and stuff and find the information. Google is everybody's friend. Take time to read up on autism, read up on dyspraxia, read up on dyslexia, you know, find out what it's about. If you don't have time to read up, like follow some of those pages. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And just being, being ready to listen being able to offer advice and not trying to conform everyone to a box. And those are my few ways. Thank you very much for talking to us and sharing your viewpoint as well and your experiences. Where can people find you if they want to look into the work that you do? You can find me mostly on Instagram 
under the Black Dyspraxic and on Twitter, the Black Dyspraxic. These are the channels that I'm on for now. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on as well. Wow, Tribe, that was such an interesting discussion we've had with both Toomey and Tyler. Such a wide topic as well. Right. Do you know what? Both of them spoke about this, but when, when they were talking about the the umbrella concept of like neurodiversity and biodiversity and there being as many different brains as there are people, it really, really reminded me of this quote. I think it's Judith Butler sort of paraphrasing Simone de Beauvoir talking about sexuality. And the, the quote is something to the effect of like, there are as many sexualities as there are people in the world you know we talk a lot about breaking down binaries and stuff like this and I just can't help but feel like you know all of these sort of ways of thinking are connected you can really borrow that kind of principle to apply it onto a lot of different things yeah it's true I've been reading this book by Janira Nuremberg called Divergent Mind thriving in a world that wasn't designed for you and in the book there's a bit where she says As a society, we're crumbling by staying stuck in an outdated factory-inspired mode of operating that simply does not work with a large demographic of people we call neurodivergent. So what she's basically saying is kind of similar to what you said, recognising all of us have differences and adapting our society to fit into these different ways in which we are different. Applying that as well to what we're seeing around the world with like Black Lives Matter and disability rights and even the different class systems and patriarchy. It's about recognising that, you know, our system needs to update itself with the way that we incorporate all our differences. Yeah, no, it is all connected. Um, Yeah. And sorry, going back to that quote, does she say a factory inspired world? Yes, it's a factory inspired. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just so deep isn't it I mean (laughs) I feel like it just underpins this thing that you have to think about when there is a status quo or a system or a a methodology in place I mean I'm a big person for methodology don't get me wrong but like whenever those things are there you need to examine like who designed it and why was it designed and who was it designed for and yeah, is it outdated? Is it serving some people than others? Or does it come from complacency? Sometimes there are these things that are just like people just doing it in a way, but because nobody has bothered even looking at whether it's the best way to do things for like 200 years. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's what we, I guess, are in various ways trying to break down now. Yeah. Okay, so some news about third. We are working on a new issue and we hope to be bringing that to you very, very soon. But we need your support. So please keep your eyes peeled on our Instagram. Follow us there and also the website where you can find out some details about the fundraiser we'll be doing and the opportunity to pre-order and support. Thank you for tuning in to Third Ways and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's Third with free eyes. Some thanks to our amazing guests. You can follow Tyler on social media on YouTube at Autistic Tyler and to me at The Black Dyspraxic. Also, the extended version of this show with music and guest DJ mixes, please listen live on Soho Radio's Culture Channel 
or find it on Mixcloud. We love hearing from our listeners, so please get in touch with feedback or to say hello. I'm Rona. I'm Tribe. And I'm Daniela. And you have been listening to Third Waves. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 